One of the things that we're uh, doing today is communion, and we haven't done it in a while. So actually, I, st- I did start to prepare a sermon on 2 Corinthians on the next passage, but uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't coming out of me. And so kind of, uh, you know, late in the week, I was just thinking about communion all week and kind of anticipating its return for us to celebrate it today. So uh, I decided to switch it up a little, and I'm going to give a, a, a short sermon on the Lord's Supper, but I guess for today, um, our focus and uh, the feature for today's, we're going to get to celebrate communion together, and so hopefully after uh, this short message, uh, it can be something powerful and very meaningful for us. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to start at verse 17 and go all the way through verse 34. Oh, and by the way, actually, before I read scripture, let me also make a quick announcement. Starting next week, we're going to add more to our worship liturgy. Um, and uh, starting next week as well, I'm going to have uh, people from the congregation participate and read scripture and pray. Um, but, you know, I was thinking, like, logistically, uh, if I just kind of email people every week, that's a little bit, like, tedious for me. So <laughs> I'm going to just assign you, and then if you can't do it, um, like for the month, I'm going to just email everybody for the month. And if you can't do it or if you don't want to do it, which is completely okay too, uh, just let me know and then I can you know, shift it around and find replacements. And if you're not going to be here on a particular Sunday, um, just let me know. So what I'm going to do though is I'm going to probably start with the council, so elders and deacons, uh, just to kind of set a pattern so you know like what to expect. And then um, uh, after that, just kind of go through everybody that I see here uh, coming to service. So expect that, and uh, if you're, you know, if you're like nervous or anything like that, don't be. <laughs> it's, a, it's a communal service, and uh, it's, it's a just kind of a great way to get participation and to, uh, to hear other people pray, because I think that's edifying too. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is a reading of God's word. Oh, if you read scripture, uh, end with that. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, God, we, um, we cherish your word, and, and it's something that is uh, important to us, and that's why we devote this attention to, uh, to read it and to hear from it, because it is indeed your word. Uh, but your word also comes with your spirit, and we need your spirit to uh, not fill us with knowledge, but impress uh, these uh, things upon our hearts, impress the, the knowledge of Christ upon our hearts, impress the glory of God and the truth of the gospel upon our hearts, because we know that that is our very foundation. Uh, that is what we need to be a part of us, and as we uh, anticipate partaking uh, in the Lord's Supper a little bit later, we ask that your spirit would be um, at work there too as we see this word being preached, this gospel being preached to us through these elements. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, as I said, we are taking a break from 2 Corinthians, and we're not going too far because we're, I just read from 1 Corinthians, and in a sense, we're still in this kind of same context of uh, the Corinthian church that is a little bit, um, you know, messed up in, <laughs> in ver uh, various ways, but I thought it would be beneficial to give a sermon on the Lord's Supper because uh, I don't think I've ever actually preached on it directly, and I don't know how many of you uh, know the significance of what it means or why we do it as a church, but uh, this pandemic has created a lot of new habits in our society and in our lives, and you know, just talking to a few of you, uh, you've definitely developed new habits with respect to work. Uh, working at home and working remotely is kind of a new norm. Um, you know, the mask thing is, is a new habit. Um, but even for churches, you know, churches have also developed these new habits, and we, uh, we as Christian believers have developed these new habits as well uh, on account of the pandemic. And, you know, some people uh, like some of these new habits, and other people may not like some of these new habits, and there's probably like a mixture of things. Uh, definitely there will be new habits that are here to stay, uh, but others will probably change over time. And I am... I think, right? I think there's probably some anxiety and some caution that is now built into some of these new habits, especially when it comes to getting together, uh, you know, in a, in a worship setting like this with other people or going to a restaurant or uh, even traveling and the things that we never really considered before. Right now, uh, anxiety and caution is just kind of a, a part of us as we consider these things. Uh, but you know, I don't, I'm not going to really talk about those things, but I, I do want to talk about some of these, like, spiritual habits or new spiritual habits for Christians and uh, for churches and how we operate. And before, uh, I would probably say uh, most churches did not have, like, an online streaming component of, like, streaming worship. Uh, these days, right, most churches now do it, right? Even, like, a small church like us, uh, it's just kind of a, a new habit that's formed. And, uh, you know, some churches are planning to phase that out uh, eventually. Uh, others, I, I probably will just kind of continue to stream their services. Uh, there's, you know, going to be a, a different range of how churches respond to some of these things. But, you know, the fact that we have, like, all the this, these, like, technological capabilities to uh, be able to even stream a service in the middle of a pandemic, uh, it, it's definitely raised some, like, interesting theological questions, uh, for me at least, about what role does our like, physical body have to do with our spirituality? 
I don't know if you've thought about it, but this has been something that has been on my mind. Uh, this is something that, you know, I've, as I've gathered with, like, other pastors, uh, we kind of touch upon and, like, talk about, um, you know, because the Greek word for church is this uh, Greek word ekklesia, and basically it means an assembly. So in one sense, uh, the church becomes a church as the people of God assemble together. That's why we call it a congregation. Um, and the pandemic raises a question, does assembling virtually count as an assembly, right? Does assembling without our bodies count as an assembly? And if it doesn't, then are we being church? Uh, are we still church when we gather without our bodies? And, you know, it's such a unique question, and it only comes up now, <laughs> right? It only comes up because we have, like, these technological capabilities in this digital age to do things like that. And, you know, the challenge is some of these digital habits are, are here to stay. I don't see, um, I don't see uh, a lot of it changing. And even though, you know, we were very mobile uh, as, a, as a society before the pandemic, we're much more mobile now because, uh, you know, even though we're more maybe confined to our homes, because our jobs no longer necessarily require us to be geographically confined, you know, people can move all the time and still keep the same job. So it's interesting, right? Uh, some of those th are the theological questions that uh, I'm sure people will wrestle with in a digital age. I don't come here with any answers. Uh, I, I am wrestling with them myself. Uh, I suspect most of you, or many of you maybe, at an experiential level, uh, you at least know that gathering in an in-person worship is probably better, right, than a virtual worship. Uh, so at least on the level of experience, I think that's something you know. Uh, even though I also know there are Sundays where we would just love to stay home and stream the service uh, because, you know, getting the kids ready and they're fighting and, like, you're yelling at them and then kind of making this trek, especially in the winters, and it's, like, so cold, and then sometimes you can't find parking in this area, like, all these things, like, you think about. Uh, sometimes it is it, it's just easier to stay home and, and stream it. Um, but my, I guess my point today is going to be very simple. The one thing we couldn't do virtually was the sacraments. <laughs> right? That's like the one thing that you need to be physically, bodily present for, and it's a very important part of our spirituality uh, as a church. And so on account of, you know, if you, if you think about it, right, uh, maybe from your perspective, even hearing a sermon you can do virtually. Uh, I'll say from my perspective as the preacher, it's not the same. But maybe from your perspective as someone hearing the sermon, you know, doing it virtually is okay. Uh, maybe like the, the singing aspect is okay, although I would say I think it's important to hear everybody singing uh, as a congregation, and I would say something is lost when we don't hear that. But sacraments, there's no negotiation. You can't do that virtually, right? You, you just have to be here uh, bodily and in order to partake. And it's, a, it's an especial important means of grace that is given for our spiritual benefit. And so, uh, again, I don't know if I've ever preached on the Lord's Supper. I don't know how many of you have, like, this uh, theological understanding of why we do it or what it means or if you've even considered what is lost when we can't uh, practice it. But since we're bringing it back today, I just thought it would be helpful to kind of give a word or two about its significance. Now, this is going to be a shorter sermon than usual, I think. Uh, on Friday, uh, the elders, we, we kind of got together. And uh, Peter asked me, uh, what was, uh, what's my favorite sermon that I've ever preached? And I didn't have an answer because generally I don't remember many of my sermons. 
But as I was preparing to preach this text, uh, it came to me, I do remember some of the worst sermons I preached. (laughs) And uh, I remember preaching on this text like 14 or 15 years ago because we were going through a series uh, on 1 Corinthians in a different church. And I was assigned this text and uh, I didn't know how to really preach it. And it was like one of the worst sermons I ever preached. It was a terrible sermon. And I remember that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's not the main reason why I want to keep this message short. uh, Because I I, I do want to give enough time for us to reflect, enjoy, give thanks when we partake in the Lord's Supper. I want us to have like an extended time of worship after. Um, But I hope the sermon goes better than it did 14 or 15 years ago. Uh, There are basically two things that the Lord's Supper does. So two points in the sermon. The first thing it does is it brings us together with Jesus. And the second thing it does is it brings us together with one another. Simple points. Now, let's look at this first point. Uh, The Lord's Supper brings us together with Jesus. Uh, I was going to initially preach on a passage where uh, Jesus actually institutes his meal in, in the gospel narratives and Uh, Because in those narratives, if you recall, uh, they're celebrating the Passover. And I think that gives significant context to what the Lord's Supper does. You know, in a traditional Passover meal, it kind of functions like a service where, like, you have this liturgy to follow. And in that liturgy back then, they would drink from four cups of wine. uh, And they would recite certain things over the food. And they would, you know, sing things, uh, something known as, like, the Hillel Psalms. And then there was even a time uh, of question and answer where the children would, you know, ask questions about the meaning of the meal. And it's kind of a way to continue the remembering the story of the Exodus, of remembering the story of how God brought Israel out of the bondage uh, from the Egyptians. And so the person who's leading this Passover meal is usually the head of the household, and they would pronounce blessing over the food. You'd have bread, you'd have these bitter herbs, you'd have a roasted lamb. And then they would drink four cups of wine to basically symbolize four promises uh, that God makes in the book of Exodus. So they would drink the first cup and they would remember that God said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, right? Drink. Then they would drink a second cup and they would remember, remember that God said, I will deliver you from slavery, right? Drink the cup of wine. The third cup, I will redeem you with outstretched arms, drink. And then the fourth cup, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And that's kind of how like the traditional Passover liturgy would work. And, uh, you know, when I first like read about that, I said, oh, that's why the disciples fell asleep at Gethsemane, right? <laughs> they, they had a lot of wine. But anyway, the purpose of this meal was to remember how Israel was under the oppression of the Egyptians. And perhaps, you know, the most dramatic thing that they would remember is how the destroyer passed over the firstborn of the Jewish homes because of the lamb's blood that was painted on the door frames. And so they would be celebrating the Passover for, you know, probably like over a thousand years. And there's like slight variations probably in how uh, the Jewish people celebrated it. But the essence of the meaning of that meal was always there. So now Jesus comes and it's Passover. And he leads this Passover meal but he departs from tradition because he infuses new meaning into this meal. Normally, someone might say, right, this bread is uh, our father's affliction in the wilderness. But that's not what Jesus says. He changes it and he says, this bread is my body, right? In other words, this bread is a bread of my affliction, my suffering. Then he takes a cup of wine, which is 
probably at this point the third cup of wine in the Passover celebration, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And the people sitting at the Passover meal, I don't know, maybe they're thinking, whoa, what is Jesus saying here, right? This is like a departure from what we're used to uh, practicing in our, in our tradition and remembering the, the Exodus story. And Jesus here, he's personalizing it as he takes this cup of wine and as he takes this bread. And he doesn't say, this is the blood of the lamb which is poured out for many. He says, this is my blood which is poured out for many. Now, in the Bible, uh, the covenant, right, it's this uh, agreement that binds these two parties together. And after God rescued Israel from Egypt, he makes a covenant with them in Exodus 24. And the way that that covenant is sealed is by the sprinkling of the blood. And what Jesus is now saying is this. There's this new covenant, and this new covenant is being ratified. But it's not through the blood of the lamb, but it's through my own blood. And in the Passover meal that Jesus institutes, there's this, you know, there is a conspicuous absence of a, any kind of mention of the lamb, right, the, the main attraction. In the Jewish Passover meals, that was central to the meal. But when Jesus celebrates the Passover, there is no reference to the lamb when he institutes the meal. Why? Because he's saying this, I am the lamb, right? I am the sacrificial lamb. I am the one who would be poured out for the afflicted. And I would be the one who would be afflicted and poured out for many. Uh, I am the one whose blood would be shed. And of course, at that point, he's anticipating his work on the cross. He says, I am the means in which you will experience this liberation, this new and this better exodus, because I am going to free you from the bondage of sin and death. And as you can tell, the words of the institution and the meals, basically, it is a proclamation of the gospel. It's the good news that we celebrate. It is supposed to remind us what Jesus has done, and it is supposed to remind us that we are united to God in Christ. And that's why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Let me clarify what he means by do this in remembrance of me, because when we think about that word remember, we usually think about like mental recall. Uh, the fact that I don't remember most of my sermons, uh, that's interpreted as I cannot recall right, most of my sermons uh, because my mind is not very sharp and I just don't remember it. But that is not exactly the, the sense. That's kind of a weak sense of what Jesus means by when he says, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, the most helpful way that I've heard it explained is like this. Uh, think of remember as the opposite of dismember. Okay, When you dismember something, uh, it's like you know, you're cutting off an arm or a leg or something. You're removing uh, a member. You're removing a limb from the body. To remember would be the opposite of that. It would be to attach or to graft something on. It's taking something that is not a part of you and now making it a part of you. So what does that mean in the context of the Lord's Supper when we eat and drink and we do this in remembrance of Jesus? What we are saying is this. Jesus is in a very real, a very spiritual way present in this meal that we eat and drink. And it's though we are saying we are now making Jesus and his gospel a part of us. We are grafting it to ourselves. Why? Because we need it. At the very core of what we profess when we say Jesus is my Savior and Lord is this. I need you, Jesus, right? That's what we're saying. I need you to be a part of my life. I need you to be a part of me. I need you to be united with me. And when we say, do this in remembrance of me, that's what we're doing as we partake it. 
or making Jesus a part of us. It's one of the spiritually significant ways that brings us together with Jesus. Second, uh, it's a communal activity. It actually brings us together with one another. Um, And here we get to the text. You know, one of the issues uh, was that the Corinthian church was a divided church. And you can see Paul addressing that in, in this passage. So in verse 18, he says, you know, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I think there's probably all kinds of dividing lines at work in this church, but it also seems like they're divided along class lines or socioeconomic lines because in those days when you would celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, what they would do is people, I guess, would bring their own bread and bring their own wine from their own homes, and then they would sit around these tables and then they would gather. Uh, But if you're bringing it from your own homes, well, guess what? The wealthy they have more wine and they have more bread, right? So they would bring uh, enough bread and wine that they would actually get drunk on this wine. And then meanwhile, you have the poor and they have very little and they go hungry. And uh, the rich, they despise the poor. And so they would probably sit at these separate tables and they wanted very little to do with them. And so Paul, he is addressing uh, basically the, the rich affluent people who are despising the poor. When they come together around the Lord's Supper, they are partaking in it in an unworthy manner because they are maintaining these lines of division, and he's basically writing to address that. Uh, in a sense, the problem with the way that they were partaking in this meal is they use this meal to further fracture the body and to uh, divide it more rather than understanding that this meal is meant to bring us together, the people of God together. This meal is not only meant to bring us together with Jesus, but it is communal, and it is meant to bring us together with one another. Now, in meals in the ancient world, uh, it was understood that you share a meal with intimate friends, and oftentimes those friends were probably of the same uh, social class. Uh, Conversely, you would maybe exclude people that uh, people in your class would despise. And so when Jesus, he eats with sinners and tax collectors, the reason why people are shocked is because these were people who were despised. Uh, But Jesus ate with them to make a very simple point. And his point was this. His table is not for uh, one based on class, based on social status, based on wealth, based on achievement, based on merit. It is not based on any of those things that typically divide us. His table is a table of grace. You are invited to this table, not on account of your righteousness, but you are invited to this table on account of your need. When the Pharisees grumble that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, his response is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What does the Lord's table say about all of us? Uh, It's a table based on grace, which means, right, all the things that typically divide people into these little hierarchies uh, in the rest of society, they become irrelevant when we come to the Lord's table. Uh, We all fall into this same boat. There is no better, there is no worse, right? Sometimes we uh, attach uh, those kind of words to like Christian, right? Better Christian, worse Christian. Uh, All those categories, all those hierarchies don't exist when we come to a table of grace, because we don't come with our good deeds. We don't come with our salaries. We don't come with our careers. We don't come with our ability to parent well. We don't come with because we've served the church uh, more than any other person. We all come together as sinners and beggars in need of grace. That's what we're united by. All together, we, we need Jesus. 
We need Jesus to be grafted, to be a part of us, uh, to come into us, right? To be one with us. And therefore, to use this meal in a way that fractures and divides the body, it betrays the very gracious nature of this meal. This meal is meant to show us that we're all in the same boat. We all come to Jesus with the same posture, with our hands held out and in in need of grace. Now, uh, we've modified how we are going to do this, and we've set up tables around the room just to kind of keep the uh, people spaced out. But if you remember how we used to do it, we did it in the front, and then people would come up. And the idea behind that is you're coming up as needy people. You're coming to receive. So even though it's like spread out, um, right, think about that <laughs> and go with that mentality. You know, I am a beggar and I need this and I'm coming to receive as a needy person. Uh, and when we partake in this way, what we're doing is we're, pro- you know, we're proclaiming uh, a gracious God and a gracious gospel that we really desperately need to be a part of us. And that's why before we partake, we also examine ourselves to make sure that we're properly taking this meal. Uh, it means that I don't, the application is a little bit murky, um, and I would say a lot of it uh, will probably have to do with your conscience, whether you're uh, ready to partake or not partake. Um, but at least in this context, it means you know, you're not dividing the body. Uh, maybe if there's a relationship that you refuse to reconcile, you know, maybe don't partake, right? Uh, I had a professor, actually, and he said uh, when he would... Uh, when he would teach like the children's ministry during the service and then the children would come in and then like everybody would partake in the Lord's Supper. On those days, he actually decided not to partake, not because um, you know, he wasn't repentant, but he's like, you know, I'm not, uh, just based on his conscience, he was like, I haven't really, um, I'm not in the right place spiritually because I've been like, you know, taking care of the kids this whole time. Uh, so I, I, I think maybe it's largely up to your conscience. I don't think that necessarily applies to everybody, uh, but maybe we have like this, I don't know, Asian shame and guilt is like, oh, if I don't partake today, uh, is, are people going to like notice and see? Uh, all that stuff doesn't matter, right? Um, what you want to do is you want to examine your hearts and ask yourself, do I really feel like I need Jesus? Am I struggling in my faith? Is my faith weak? Do I need my faith to be strengthened by Jesus? And if so, this meal is for you to receive it to strengthen your faith because friends we are incapable of saving ourselves we're just not capable of it Uh, we have to rely on jesus for everything to sustain us to give us life to give us hope to give us peace to give us security to give us everlasting joy this meal is incredibly important because uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, for what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to actually be a church that comes together, that assembles, that congregates together for the express purpose of worshiping God, that we have this shared and common faith. We may not uh, be compatible in terms of a bunch of other things, but we share this common faith. And because of that, that unites us more than anything that can unite us because we're united in a person. It's a meal that brings us together with Jesus. It's a meal that brings us together with one another. And I hope you know this is an incredible gift to strengthen our faith that God has given to us to practice that we have been missing out on (laughs) because of this stinking pandemic, right? (laughs) 
but I hope you are all excited to uh, commune with Jesus today. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll partake. You know, God, this is a um, this is a, a, a special moment, um, you know, at least for me, and hopefully for many of us, that um, we can once again come to this table, and you know, a gift that you've given to us, something that we haven't had, um, is returned to us, and we're thankful for that. Uh, we we know that this meal. Um, is more than, uh, I guess, just the the little wafer and, and the juice uh, that we see, but you really are spiritually present in this meal. That by way of the Holy Spirit, you use this meal to encourage us, to build our faith, to strengthen us, to remind us of this great gospel, um, you know, using different senses than what we typically use when we hear uh, a sermon and hear the word preached. But here we get to use uh, other senses uh, in our bodies. And I pray, God, that your spirit would activate um, those senses and that as we uh, eat this bread and drink this uh, wine, um, that you would touch our hearts, that we would remember what Christ has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.